So this morning we are continuing our series in Live It Up. Uh, and this morning we're going to kind of look at a, a wrong kind of living it up, kind of a live it up on steroids, so to speak. We're going to be looking at several different passages. We're going to look at a few minutes of Genesis chapter 2 and then Exodus 20 uh, and then eventually Mark chapter 2. Those scriptures will be on the screen when we get to them. Uh, but I want you to stop and think for just a minute about how busy uh, your life is. How many uh, things you're running to, how often you're trying to get things done, uh, how many times you kind of feel harried and uh, almost overwhelmed with all there is to do and all the, all the noise that's out there and all the, the pressure that's on you to kind of keep up and to keep pace. Maybe when you look at your life, it seems to be a bit of a blur. And, you know, it's almost like I, I'm kind of watching it go by and I can't even quite keep up with all of it. Uh, in our generation, in our current day and age, time has become the major commodity in the world in which we live. There's a little fun cartoon where an employee is asking the boss for a little bit of time, uh, like a minute. And he says, sure, I could do that next Tuesday. And you'd like to laugh at it, except it's true, right? You know, that's kind of what our world uh, feels like on a day in and day out uh, basis. We used to use post-it notes, right? Now you kind of do it all in your phone. Uh, we have a throwback in, in our office, and this is not a picture of her, but Diana Smopietri does post-it notes. And if you look at her desk at any given moment, there's, and I'm not kidding, there's what, Peggy, 30 or 40 easily post-it notes. This is everybody's working in the office going at least uh, on her desk. And somehow she knows what she's doing next. It's like when that one gets thrown away and another one gets written, but you just go by and you look at it and you just kind of get tired. When you stand there and look at it. So the end result is you, you end up kind of feeling like this. You just, you got nothing left. And, and life has kind of run amok, uh, has gotten the better of you. And yet, if you, uh, if you had to say, you know, where are the margins? Where could I cut back a little bit? How could I create uh, maybe a little bit of rest in my life? It might not be a very simple question to answer. It might be a little more difficult. It might be a little more challenging than just saying, oh, I need to, I need to slow down a bit. Uh, Chris Ostendorf wrote this a couple of years ago. Being busy in the modern world is about much more than just how many hours we work. Busyness has become a status symbol of sorts, one that we use to promote our worth to the rest of the world. Almost everyone I know is busy. They feel anxious and guilty when they aren't either working or doing something to promote their work. We can't just be busy anymore. We have to be busier than everyone else. We have to be busiest. And in that sense, being busy can also start to feel like a competition. Being busy now seems not only to be a requirement for work, but for our leisure time as well. Sure, the internet loves to romanticize the concept of laziness, but even in our lazy times, we need to be accomplishing something. We no longer just turn on the TV to wind down. We binge watch blowing through episode after episode of our favorite shows like we were on a quest. So I remember the dreaded day when Scott Holly introduced me to the TV show 24. And <laughs> yeah, and maybe y'all had this similar experience. And it was, uh, he introduced it to me in late February and spring break was coming up and we didn't happen to be going any place on spring break that, that year. And this is, I'm going way back. This is when you got the, like the tape 
and you, you know, and you put it in or the CD and you put it in and Blockbuster was open 24 hours a day. I kid you not. There were two nights in a row where at 2 a.m. We looked at each other and we're like, can we do another one? Yeah. And I literally drove to Blockbuster <laughs> and got the next, the next set of shows because, because Jack Bauer was in big trouble. And if we didn't watch, it was all going to blow up and just be, be terrible. Do you think God has an opinion about my schedule or your schedule? Do you think God speaks into that aspect of our life? I mean, as long as we understand that we're loved by Jesus, as long as we've, we've embraced faith in, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and our hope is in him, does it really matter if we're, we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off? Does God really have anything to say about our work and about our rest that actually perhaps maybe in our generation we've tended to ignore? Genesis chapter 2, and then Exodus 20, and then Mark chapter 2, hear the word of God. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host in them, of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the, the work, uh, excuse me, his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In Exodus chapter 20, God is speaking to Moses. He is giving the, what is going to become known as the Torah or the law of Moses. And this is one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's another way of saying a visitor who is staying at your house. For six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And in Mark chapter 2, an account out of the life of our Lord Jesus uh, that takes place on a what we kind of call Sunday now, but uh, is, is termed still in the New Testament the Sabbath. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, as, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was, not, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, just in the, the quiet of the moment, we appreciate the opportunity to be still. But Lord, if it carries on too long, uh, it may begin to be uncomfortable because we feel the need to get up and go and do, uh, to be active, to be busy, to be accomplishing things, to be working on projects, to be making sure that our, our children are doing the same. Father, we have become a people who do not know how to rest. I know there are some among us who, who do, who have... Who have uh, understood this gift that you have given and have applied it to their lives. But Lord, most of us uh, don't even really struggle with it. We, we just kind of let our lives run. Uh, and this has gotten away from us. So Father, I pray that you would 
Soften our hearts and our minds to what you want to say to us this morning. Lord, we could see this as um, you kind of telling us what we have to do, or we could understand what it truly is, which is a gift that you give us for our good, for our care, for our nurture. Lord, I pray that you would speak into every heart and mind that is gathered in this room this morning. Father, forgive me for my sin. I am, I am as busy as others. I don't slow down the way I should either. I can only preach this sermon as one who needs to listen to it before anybody else. But I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you want to teach us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sermon this morning, sermon of sentence is this. Disciples must learn to take advantage of the weekly rest God has woven into the fabric of life. Notice that doesn't say people in general, speaking to the people of God, people who have put their faith in Christ. Is rest in general good? Yes. But if you don't have a faith in God and you don't trust him to be who he says he is, then you won't understand the gift that has been given. Uh, The more important question is, uh, have you put your faith in Christ? And if not, uh, we're so glad you're here and you're exploring those claims. Uh, because we believe that life is found in Jesus Christ and that we can truly have an eternal relationship with him. We could truly have uh, the, the deepest meaning of life in him and through him. But for those of us who are disciples, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we must learn to take advantage of the weekly rest that God has woven into the fabric of life. As I said in my prayer, and I, and I believe with all my heart, this is one uh, that has gotten away from us. Now, this is a bit of an odd sermon. You probably haven't heard a sermon on rest in a while. I went back and looked at the last time I preached on rest, and I couldn't find it, so it's been quite some time. And it's uh, a topic that I kind of like to avoid as well, because I feel uh, that I'm probably just as guilty as anybody else. But we want to see what God says about our rest. Now, I have four observations this morning. We're going to kind of meander through these passages a couple of different times. The first observation is this. Work is good and good for you. I want to be real, real clear that we understand that we're not saying that there isn't uh, the, the place for work in our life. Scripture is very clear from its earliest pages that we are to be active in work. In Genesis chapter 1, I'm not going to put the verse up on the screen, the whole verse, but God says, after he has created man and woman, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This notion of, of filling and subduing and having dominion, these are organizational type words. God is saying, I've given you the gift of this world. Now it's yours to work. Now it's yours to be productive. And now it's time for you to use your mind in creative activities and to use your energies putting towards your work wherever you find it. So from the very first message in Scripture, we see God calling us to work. The very next verse uh, reinforces that notion. God says in verse 29, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now, how many of you subsist completely on a diet of seeds? Well, you should giggle a little bit because that just would be kind of silly. Uh, Maybe it's possible. I don't know what all the nutrients are in every seed. It, It might be something you could do. But more of us tend to subsist on the fruit that comes from the plants or the vegetables that come from the plants, the yield of the fruit. And God isn't saying to them, hey, I built you a big warehouse and I've already stocked it full of all the food you've needed. God said, I've given you the tools. 
I've given you the trees. I've given you the bushes. I've given you the seed. You're going to have to work it. You're going to have to make it productive. So God says, I'm, I'm setting the table for you, but the work is yours to do. God gets very specific in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to frolic and play all day and have fun. It's not what it says. It says that the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The work of the Garden of Eden was to be productive. And it was, and it was given to Adam to do. And you can read further in chapter 2 and see some of the things that, with which Adam busies himself. They're, they all revolve around work. If you skip over to our Exodus passage this morning, notice how the commandment begins, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So Moses is receiving the word, the law from God, and God says, get busy. Six days a week, you're to do your work. But there is a day of rest, and they're both of equal importance. So whatever you and I spent doing this last week in our work, we were reflecting the call of God in our lives. We're also reflecting the God-likeness, the image of God within us. So when I'm creative, when I, when I write a sermon, I'm reflecting the, the glory of God. When you go about your business, when you teach in your classroom, when you're raising your children, when you're cutting your grass, when you're washing your car, whatever work you're doing that reflects the creative nature of God, it reflects the call he has put in our lives to be productive and to work. I think, I hope that yesterday I cut my grass for the last time this year, right? This warm weather is really, you know, I usually, you know, C and I are, are good friends and normally about February we're losing our minds because we're so tired of winter, right? I'm getting a little tired of the warm weather because I keep having to cut my grass. So yesterday afternoon I cut it and I got it all done and I looked at my front yard and then I walked out of the backyard and I said, and behold, it is very good, right? <laughs> it just looked great. And it was like, okay, Lord, please no rain for a little while, right? This, it, but it's just kind of the, the rows are neat and I got it done. And it felt really good to get something done. That's, that's part of God's image in us. So we want to understand right from, right from the outset, whatever you're doing, writing a sermon, teaching a class, performing a surgery, uh, writing a brief, uh, what, doing a business deal, all of this is a gift from God. It's a gift of work. Do you know that uh, Florida is the number one state in the country uh, for suicides and the number one people group Within the population of suicide, uh, within the population of Florida that commit suicides are retirees, right? The absence of work isn't necessarily really good for you. And so before we begin to talk about rest, we have to understand that God's called us to a life that, that, that the most part of which subsists of our effort and our work and our energy. However, God is also very clear, as we saw in, in that, that verse in um, Exodus chapter 20, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Remember there is an important uh, part of your life that has to do with rest. So let's, second observation, let's take a minute and define Sabbath rest. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, the verses we read earlier, notice what it says about God. He rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Verse 2 and then in verse 3, now at the very bottom, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, do you think that God got done? with creation and went, oh my goodness, that was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I am exhausted. 
I am so glad I created Maui because I got to go there and I got to lay on the beach for a week at least because I just, I just, I can't put one foot in front of the other, right? Hopefully you're laughing because you know that's absurd. Our God is an all-powerful God. Hear that, friends. Our God is an all-powerful God. He does not run out of energy. Our God does not need to slumber. Our God does not need rest. He does not need refueling. So when we read this passage in Genesis chapter 2, we have to understand what it's saying. It's not saying that God rested as if he were exhausted or tired, but rather it's saying that he ceased his labor, that he finished his creative process, and he, and he uses this word because he knew that while he doesn't need to take a break, he knew that you and I would. He understands the limitations of his children. He understands that we get exhausted. He understands that, you know, Green Tree has really comfortable chairs. Probably for some of you right now, it's you're working hard just to stay awake. And, and I thank you for that Sunday in and Sunday out. But that's because you're exhausted because you've worked so hard and we need to rest. And so God is a beautiful teacher. So like a father or mother teaching their children, not by do what I say, not what I do, but by example. And so God stops and he rests because he knew that's exactly what you and I would need. I, uh, I read, there's all kinds of articles out there about different ways to rest. And I'm not going to read all this, but I did find one that had, you know, the top, top reasons, six reasons to rest. And this is, has to do more with, uh, with exercise than with anything else. But there's like, if you rest, it prevents injury. Your muscles need time to recuperate. Uh, your, you, your performance won't dip if you take a couple days off. Overtraining actually uh, hurts your sleep patterns, your immune system can overheat. I'm not sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good to me. Uh, and you could lose your mental edge. And, and the person um, ends this note with how you kind of take steps to learning to rest. And he says, so what can you do to, to get your mind set on rest? What can you do to kind of make this decision that you're going to put rest as part of your, as part of your life? For starters, you're going to have to make the mental adjustment to understanding and believing that you can take a day off. It's good for you. What God is saying to us through this person discovering that truth and what he says in his word is that rest is actually good for you. I've given it to you so that you can stop from your work so that you can benefit from being still. And so in Exodus 20, notice that everybody rests, not you, not your son, not your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant. If you have a visitor and they say, hey, you know, I noticed that your fence is kind of messed up out there and I'm really handy and I'm going to run out there real quick and fix it before we go to church. No, stop. Nobody's working today. This is a day where we rest. It also became in Old Testament Israel a day of worship, a day where prayers were offered as, as the Sabbath started at sundown and the law of Moses was read and people were reminded of the goodness and the grace of God. If we read in the Gospels, our Lord Jesus, on the, on the Sabbath day, oftentimes he would find himself in the local synagogue resting but also worshiping. If you look at the book of Acts and you see the behavior of the very first Christians, they're going to the temple on a pretty pretty regular basis, but several times it says on the Sabbath when they were at the temple or when they were on their way to the temple, it was a day set aside for rest and for worship. When you rest and you worship, you're reminded that God is your rest, that God is your provision that he is your comfort, and it gets your mind and your heart right as you go back into your world, as I go back into my world of work. 
And in Mark 2, Jesus shows that it truly is a gift, right? Man was not made for the Sabbath as if there was a legalistic, you, you must only do this and must only do that, and you better serve the Sabbath. Jesus says that, that's a wrong way. That's not God's intention. God's not trying to bully us. He's trying to give us a gift. The Sabbath was made for man. When's the last time uh, somebody made something for you? and gave it to you. Maybe it was one of your children. And maybe you have a lot of those things where, where your child drew something at school or in an art class, they provided something. And it might, there, there's an outside chance it might not end up in a national museum somewhere, right? But it's precious to you. Why? Because it, it was made out of love. It was made, and, and they're so excited to give it to you. And God is saying to us this morning, children, you don't, you got to get this. This is a gift of love. You need to rest. And I'm giving this to you as, as a means of expressing my love, it's not a pathway for you to be self-righteous. So what the Pharisees had done is they'd blown it out of proportion. They turned it around and said, you're not serving the Sabbath. And what they were doing is they were just walking down the street and they were going through these fields. And uh, by Jewish law, you could pluck some grain from the outside edges of the field. So Jesus's little 12 buddies weren't stealing anything. They were, they were just having a snack. They were perfectly within their rights. But the Pharisees were like, oh, you're harvesting. You're doing work. And, and, and aren't you terrible people? And they use it as a means of self-righteousness. And the church can be guilty of that as well. You know, we can say, no, you better just, you know, sit completely still on Sunday and not do anything at all. And if you go to a grocery store because you're out of milk and you're making somebody else work and you're a terrible person. And we can use it as a self-righteous persecution against other believers. And Jesus says, be careful. Understand, it's a gift that God gives you. So work's good. We define Sabbath rest. What are some of the obstacles that perhaps stand in our way is my third of, of my four questions this morning. And going back to Exodus for just a second, we got to remember they were an agrarian society, right? So if you've ever lived on a farm, if you've ever worked on a farm, if you have any family members that own a farm and you've gone and visited them, you know that there's always more to do. The work is never, ever finished. My wife's extended family are all farmers from southwest Minnesota. And she grew up every summer going back to Minnesota and working on the farm. And when we were, our kids were younger, we would go there for at least a week's worth of vacation. The first time I went to the farm, we were sitting around the table one night and we were chatting. And Grandpa Graf, who at the time was, was probably, I don't know, 79, 80 years old, something like that, he said, you know what? I think tomorrow I want to tear down the corn crib. Now, you, the, if you've never been on a farm, you just get the word crib out of your mind. A corn crib, his corn crib was probably as big around as a third of this room and as tall as the ceiling, okay? Not the bar, the ceiling, okay? This is a big thing. It's made out of cinder blocks and bricks. And he says, I think tomorrow we ought to tear down the corn crib. To which Uncle Denny goes, I think that's a great idea. We never use it anymore. And another cousin says, yeah, and if we get started early, we'll be done by lunch. I'm a city boy, okay? This is, this is interesting to me. So, you know, getting, getting up early and getting going means you get up, right? You, ha you have a cup of coffee, right, or two, and you get the paper, and now maybe it's your phone, but back then, but you look at the paper, then you have breakfast, and then you get out and you get to work, you know, and you get be out there ready to go by 8 o'clock, right? Okay? So I'm like, I'm all in. We'll do this. So we, we go to bed, and at about, uh, I don't know, 10 till 5 the next morning, I sit bolt up in bed because what sounds like a tank driving by our window is actually the backhoe, right? And grandpa's on the backhoe and I look out the window and because there's like a street light in the middle of the yard, you know, kind of one of those lights that hangs from a telephone pole, I'm like, they're all out there dressed with their work gloves on ready to go. And I look over at my wife and she's just grinning from ear to ear. I'm like, 
what is going on? She goes, they said they're going to start early. And by the way, you're late. You better get dressed and get out there. And then she rolled over and went back to sleep. Right? Give her an elbow on my way out the door. Right? Okay. So we were about two thirds of the way done by the time we got to breakfast. <laughs> and by lunch, we were done. Right? So when you're working on a farm, there's always more to do. But don't you have that feeling in your life as well? Are we really that different than ancient Israel today? Have we really progressed that far? I could tell you, because I hang out with you guys all the time and you hang out with me, we all feel this pressure. I got to get one more thing done. And the sense of, of urgency never seems to leave us. And it's an obstacle for our rest. It, it keeps us from seeing the gift that God has given us. It also doesn't help that, that not only is there more to be done, but that our culture is obsessed with activity. There's a great article in The, uh, in the Economist, and the author is talking about this, this obsession, and the name of his, his article came out uh, in December 2014. Is why is everyone so busy? Now, just read a little excerpt out of it. Everyone everywhere seems to be busy. In the corporate world, a perennial time scarcity problem afflicts executives all over the globe. And the matter has grown more acute in recent years since Alice Say, uh, analyst at McKinsey, a consultant firm. These, feeling are, these feelings are especially profound among working parents. And they talk about all the things that, 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 with which working parents struggle. And then he says this, individualistic cultures which emphasize achievement over affliction help cultivate this time is money mindset. This creates an urgency to make every moment count noted Harry Trinsdes, a social psychologist at the University of Illinois. Larger, wealthier cities with higher wage rates and soaring costs of living raise the value of people's time further still. New Yorkers are thriftier with their minutes and more harried than residents of Nairobi. London pedestrians are swifter than those in Lima. The tempo of life in rich countries is faster than of poor countries. A fast pace leaves most people feeling rushed. And that's how we feel. But we tend to just say, well, that's life. And we don't ever stop to think that perhaps God is giving us a different pattern. But there's also something that, that's maybe a little more subtle, but just as important. Another obstacle to Sabbath rest is that our busyness can actually cover over an anxiety that is in our lives. Uh, in um, 2016, this, this year, uh, there was an article written by uh, Louisiana health and fitness expert Sharon Armstrong, and she talks about how if we stop it, it might scare us a bit. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against the emptiness. Uh, some people uh, actively create their hectic lifestyle because they dread what they might have to face in its absence. During her 2010 TED Talk, Research professor at University of, of Houston, Brenny Brown, also discussed the, lo the long-reaching mental and physical health repercussions of embracing a culture of busy to mask other larger and particular, uh, and, excuse me, larger issues, in particular embracing busyness at the cost of happiness. The problem is that you cannot selectively numb emotions, said Brown. We are the most in-debt, obese, addicted, and medicated cohort in U.S. history. Here's grief, here's shame, here's disappointment. You can't numb those hard feelings without numbing other effects. So we also numb joy, we numb gratitude, we numb happiness, and then we are miserable. We are looking for purpose and meaning, and it becomes a dangerous cycle. 
And then a, a doctor, a colleague of hers agreed, being consistently busy is one of the ways people can practice avoidance. Like addiction, you are over-dependent upon activity and you engage in that activity to the detriment of all other things. Why you are addicted depends on a lot of factors, including cultural influences or even religious influences. Did you hear that? Even religious influences. Churches that say to people, you got to work more, you got to give more, you got you to be here all the time, every day. Pastors who take pride in working seven days a week and not taking their day off. And that's a very real temptation for people in my line of work because the busier you can, you can appear, the, the more people empathize with you. The more they, they, they think you're, you know, you're kind of a, a hero to them. You gotta, you're the epitome of what somebody should do instead of being a person that's actually sinning against God's grace and mercy by ignoring his call to rest. But it might be that we are worshiping as pastors your applause of us rather than worshiping the Lord Jesus and his glory and his majesty, which should be our focus of worship. It's a terrible temptation, but it's a very real temptation. The last uh, couple of of things that could be obstacles to Sabbath rest, one that may not uh, make you very happy, but I believe it's true, is that I think we tend to idolize our children. I think we tend to make uh, what we believe to be the, the important pathway for them, whatever that might be, whether it's athletically or scholastically or in the arts, uh, we tend to elevate that as the most important thing. We want to make sure they're on the best team or at least on the most teams possible. We want to make sure that they have multiple activities, the latest smartphone, that they begin practicing their for their ACT and upper grade school years, whatever we can do to push them ahead. And we mix this with a culture that has no value for rest and has no value for worship. And we end up looking like the rest of the world. And we end up doing our children a great disservice. I had a woman come to me one time years ago. This was probably close to a dozen years ago. And she was terrified that her son was falling behind in his hockey skills. And I kind of glibly mentioned the fact that, you know, that like 99.2% of all people that play amateur hockey never play professional hockey. And then I kind of chuckled and she didn't think that was very funny. Um, So she said, so here's what I've done. She kind of blew past that. I've gotten him two extra skating lessons a week because I'm really fearful that he's falling behind the other boys who are also four years old. (laughs) But that's what we do. We idolize our children. We decide the pathway they must take. And then we push and we push and we push and we push our time and we push their time and our, our neighbors do the same thing and we're caught in this trap and we can't seem to find a place to rest or to teach them the value of rest. The very last coaching clinic I went to when I was uh, uh, becoming a high school hockey coach was at the University of Wisconsin. It was a three-day seminar and the hands down, the best lesson I learned in that entire clinic, and these were guys that were te- coaching at, at a college level in a junior level. And there was a guy that gave a lecture and he was a college coach who had won national championships and probably could have coached in the NHL if he had wanted to. And he said, uh, when's the last time any of you coaches here, and you're talking like a lot of collective coaches in this room, a lot of years of coaching. He said, when's the last time you just kind of got your guys together, your gals together, and you divided up teams and you put them on the bench and you threw out a puck and said, let's just play and have some fun. And nobody could raise their hand. He goes, maybe I should remind us that this is a game and that play is part of rest. He actually used that phrase. 
And that, that play is part of enjoying the creativity of the world. I don't, don't know if the man was a Christian or not. He never talked about things of faith, but he certainly uh, made it clear that what God's truth is, that, that we're called to not only rest ourselves and use that as a gift from God, but to teach our children the same. And I think ultimately, it, maybe it comes down to, to you and me abusing Jesus's words on the Sabbath. Jesus said that this man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man but maybe, just maybe, we've then said, well, then anything that fits my fancy fits in that category. And we have not slowed down one bit. We've just maybe put a little different face on it. And the result is that rest is fleeting and that we, we squeeze in a little worship. Uh, and, and I mean, and that's throughout the week as well, not just on, on, on the Lord's Day, but we, uh, we, we find time to kind of shoehorn as much as we possibly can. And then we wonder why we lose our joy. And we wonder why we're, we're, we're exhausted and we wonder why we're more susceptible to temptation. I believe these obstacles are very real and I believe that as a, as a congregation, as individuals, we need to look at them, each one of them, and see what God may be saying to us this morning. And then I want to end with this observation, which is what's the pathway to biblical rest? If God tells us the work is good, but the rest is just as important, he's defined the Sabbath for us, we know there are obstacles, but then how do we, how do we move in that direction? First thing I would say is simply this. We need to trust God that his word is true. So when, when, when we read that, that God has called us to rest, we read in Exodus chapter 20 that God's given us rest as a gift, that one day a week God says, I want you to put everything down and stop, and, and I want you to just catch your breath, you know, lay in the hammock, take a walk, read a book, whatever, whatever kind of falls into that. And I'm not, a, you know, like strict, you've got to do this or that whatever recharges your batteries, whatever, whatever energizes you, whatever kind of gets you back to a good spot as you worship God and participate in those things, do I trust that God's word is true? Do I trust that Exodus 20 is just as important as the passage about Jesus on the cross dying for my sins? Do I understand that the same God who, who deemed me worth salvation, worth his son going to the cross, also is a God who said, Tom, there's got to be a day where you stop. There's got to be a day where you rest. It's a gift that I'm giving to you. I think we need to to trust God and therefore examine my rest or the lack thereof. I've got to be willing to look at my schedule. I've got to be willing to say, yeah, I need to turn that off. Yeah, we need to to take that away and shut it down for a while. Which leads me to my second uh, thought here in application. And that is we need plan. We need to be uh, really uh, proactive not just reactive, but proactive with our schedule so that we're actually planning to rest. So I had a friend a few years ago, and I'm going to go over just a couple minutes, so bear with me. I had a friend a few years ago who came to me, and he's, a, uh, he's one of like the leading Old Testament uh, theologians in the country, okay? He, he wrote a commentary on Leviticus this thick, and he had fun doing it. I mean, there's something, he's imbalanced. But he came to me and he said, uh, tell me about your Sabbath. And I said, well, Friday's my day off. Um, it, it's a great day off for me. I love it. Uh, usually people aren't looking for the pastor on Friday. Uh, so it, it tends to be a little quieter and I can really enjoy a day off. He goes, well, tell me about your Thursday. He goes, when do you quit work? I'm like, oh, God, I work till like 9 o'clock. I make sure I get everything done. I don't want to let anything interrupt. You know, and I'm kind of this, I'm going to make sure I take my day off. And he said, so, so you work till like 8 or 9 o'clock? He goes, yeah, but I get it all done. And when I get done, I go home. He goes, well, how do you, how do you feel when you wake up on Friday morning? I said, I feel like somebody beat me with a baseball bat. He said, well, that's interesting. And then he says, well, you know what the Old Testament says about this, right? Now, when a, when, when a, a leading scholar in the Old Testament asks you that question, <laughs> the answer is no, please tell me, okay? <laughs> I missed that the first time around. I took a shot at it. 
And he just shook his head. And then, so then I finally said, okay, tell me. He goes, Tom, the Sabbath begins at sundown. Doesn't begin in the morning. It begins in the sundown. He goes, look at, look at how the, 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 the first chapter of Genesis was written. There's evening. There's morning the first day, evening, morning. Say, he goes, Sabbath, if you read in the Old Testament, is from sundown to sundown. So he said, so what you got to start doing is practicing a true Sabbath, not because it's legalistic, but you're going to feel so much better. He says, so leave your office at a reasonable time. So now I try to leave on Thursday afternoons at three o'clock, four o'clock at the very latest. And I have time to wind down. I have time to cut a little grass. I have time to go um, you know, have a, 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 a cigar. I shouldn't say that too loud. I, I, I have time to hang out with a couple friends and just talk about any, I have, but I have time to decompress. And then I can enjoy Thursday evening with Cindy. And Friday morning when I wake up, it's like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. And this sounds really silly. I know you're looking at me like I'm crazy. This has really changed my life when it comes to Sabbath rest, just going from sundown to sundown and realizing the gift that God actually intended to give me. So I want to encourage us to plan to be proactive. I can't just look at my watch at 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon and say I'm done. If I haven't planned accordingly, there may still be a lot left to do if I didn't get my week organized right. The time to think about Thursday is on Sunday night or Monday morning. So I'm getting ready to re-engage in my week. God's given us as a gift, but we have to be thorough in planning as we think about how to take advantage of it. And then the last observation is this, and I'm going to introduce a verse here, and I don't like introducing verses at the end of a sermon, but I think this is important because Paul says something fascinating in 1 Corinthians 6. He's talking about being under the freedom of the gospel and and not uh, being under the, the, the law. And he says this, all things are lawful for me in Christ. He's saying all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So can I ignore this reading and go out and, and, and go, you know, go back in my office and work for a couple extra hours to get some stuff done? Sure, I can. All right, I can do that. Jesus isn't going to send me to hell for that. But is it helpful for me? Absolutely not. And then he goes on to say something else very interesting. He says this, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What Paul understands is that if I don't control my schedule, my schedule is going to control me. He understands that I will become the slave and busyness will become my master. So are we willing to listen to the word of God this morning? Am I willing to trust God and say, Lord, there's a time for rest. It is as important as work. It's less time to rest than work, but it is as important. I'm going to believe your word and I'm going to take steps in my life to learn to rest. So what do we do? We take a lesson from the lion's. Those guys aren't working very hard, are they? <laughs> I stumbled upon this this week. This is, this, is, this is a God thing. I wasn't even looking for this, and I just stumbled across this, across this. Listen to this. Lions spend a majority of their day asleep. They average 20 hours of sleep. This is because they were listening to Tom's sermon. No, this is because... <laughs> Their size, lifestyle, and hunting style. Lions are enormous cats. They can weigh up to 400 pounds. Most of this weight is muscle. This bulk generates an enormous amount of heat, requiring frequent rest periods. However, lions need all that bulk because when they hunt, they need to accelerate quickly and wrestle down their prey. Something the size of a zebra does not go down easily, especially when it's moving at top speed. Finally, Lions rest as much as they do because they eat enormous quantities of food in between long periods of no food at all. Lions are not as successful at bringing down prey as hyenas, and they may go a day or more without food. 
It is more efficient for them to rest in between meals than to waste energy in mindless activity. Now, he had me up until the very last one. He said mindless activity. So these lions are sitting there going, what is a mindless activity? Well, let's go play Frisbee. No, that would be dumb. Okay, I understand lions don't think that way, right? But here's how lions think. Rest, hunt, eat. Repeat. Rest, hunt, eat. Right? Believers in Jesus. Work, rest. It's a gift from God. It really is. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in a, in a, a day where rest is almost seen as something evil, there, there's something wrong with you if you can slow down and take your mind off of things. And if you're not busy, then, then woe to you because clearly you're, you're doing life the wrong way. Father, we are always tempted to listen to the world instead of you, but this is, I think, a much more subtle temptation that has crept into our lives. Father, I thank you for those here who who have a a good um, time of life that that they've really thought about their rest. They've put it into their schedule. But, Father, for many of us who struggle with this week in and week out, whether we're raising children or, or running a a business or teaching school or raising kids, Lord, there's so many things that just drive us to busyness. Father, I pray that we would work and work well, but Lord, I also pray that we would see the gift of rest that you have given us and that we would take advantage of it as something that our Father has offered for our well-being and for our good in order that we would be energized by our worship of him, by our pausing in our efforts that we may then return to the work that you have given us, which is not only all of these things that we've mentioned, but also sharing your gospel with, with a lost and broken world. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would teach us to rest, and we pray in your name. Amen.